This is a production of the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, the JGI. Ahead of the 2022 World Cup, while the rest of the world wondered which countries would qualify, there was a different competition going on in the turf grass world. Which grass would cover World Cup stadium pitches? Three different grass varieties were in the running, Bermuda, Zoysia, and Seashore Paspalum. The winning grass would beat out its competitors by growing well in heat and tolerating shade. And better yet, it would grow quickly with less fertilizer and less water. Basically, qualities we might want in any crop that grows in our warming world. As all three grass varieties went head-to-head at multiple test sites, experts tallied their turfly talents, like density, durability, and growth. In the end, one grass prevailed. The game and practice fields in Qatar were covered in the same turf. It was a patented variety of a grass called seashore paspalum. Meanwhile, totally separate from the World Cup, a team at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln had also been thinking about seashore paspalum. The scientific name is Paspalum vaginatum. That's Guangzhou's son. He studied this grass for a few years when he was a postdoc in James Schnabel's lab. Their team was excited about how tough Paspalum was. They were trying to understand why. And in the summer of 2022, they had results ready to publish right when the World Cup began. So that's when these two Paspalum storylines collided. James Schnabel realized Paspalum would be on World Cup fields. The paper was just starting to come out and, oh, there's this other completely different story about why this is an exciting plant to be working on. I was watching the game and then I got a message from James saying, hey, Paspalum is, is actually the turf grass <laughs> of the World Cup. I almost jumped. It's pretty exciting to find out you know the plant covering the field. Since then, I cannot help myself but looking at the grass every time when I watch the game. You know, I was a turf watcher, but not <laughs> a game watcher, so. And so naturally, you tell your friends. Hey, if you watch the, watch the World Cup, pay attention to the turf. <laughs> Which is the kind of thing that tends to spread. And so I would get text messages, even when I wasn't watching games of, hey, just saw this game, I mean, the turf looks great. <laughs> I take no credit at all for the turf, but it was fun that that was what people were thinking of. So in this episode, we'll hear what James, Guangchao, and their team found when they took a look at the species of grass that Argentina beat France on. This is Genome Insider from the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, where researchers discovered the expertise encoded in our environment in the genomes of plants, fungi, bacteria, archaea, and environmental viruses to power a more sustainable future. I'm Manika Wilhelm. And first, a little groundwork. There's a big reason that our plant biologists have turned their attention to turf grass. Like they said, they're not really in the sports field scene. They're really interested in crops. Corn, millet, rice, sorghum, plants that become food as well as other products like biofuels. But they also study grass because unlike farmed crops, wild grasses can often exist with less water or more heat or less nutrients. And that could turn out to be useful for lots of other plants because the grass family is a broader group than most people might expect. Rice, sugar, and corn all fall into that large family. So we get food from grass fields, technically. Corn and sorghum also become ethanol biofuel. And as time goes on, we'll need more ways to make sure these grasses can still grow well in a warming world. 
which might shift how you feel about watching grass grow. And actually, the grass we're talking about today, seashore paspalum, it grows so aggressively that it must be watched. I can tell you a story about it. That's Guangzhou Sun again. So several years ago, he had just started as a new postdoc at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln in James Schnabel's lab. So I was given a tour. They went all around the greenhouse space to show off what the lab was working on. Seashore Paspalum got a special shout out. And I was particularly told that, you know, you need to pay more attention to this grass because this grass grows very fast, given the same amount of greenhouse water. And you need to trim it regularly. Otherwise, the plant will try to invade the parts of adjacent plants. Paspalum can grow outward from its stalk, send out rhizomes, and crawl its way into other specimens' pots. And the greenhouse manager will be mad at you. <laughs> so just give you a sense of, you know, this grass grows super fast. And at first, actually, Guangzhou kind of figured that growing paspalum wouldn't really be his problem. I was hired for another project. But as I mentioned, when I was shown this crazy growing pace of paspalum, I had so many questions about it that James told me more about it. It's an extremely uh, stress-tolerant grass. I mean, it's called seashore paspalum because you will find it right on beaches growing in the sand with the, the salt. You can even water paspalum with seawater. That really just kind of blew my mind. I, I, I really want to know more about it. So it grows and grows and grows, and it tolerates salt and heat. And it's got even more going for it. Here's James Schnabel again. You're growing on sand. There really are not uh, a lot of nutrients there. It's essentially just, you know, tiny pieces of rock. In the greenhouse, that means paspalum doesn't need a bunch of fertilizer to grow. It's even hardy against stresses that are a bit more surprising for a beach grass. Paspalum turned out to be very tolerant of cold environments, which you would not expect. It's also tolerant of low light. There is one study looking at its ability to grow in areas that have been contaminated with crude oil. It does reasonably well with that. A lot to feel good about. So Guangzhou was listening. This grass seemed special. But there was something else he learned that got him even more interested. When I was told that paspalum is actually also a wild relative of maize and sorghum, you know, maize and sorghums are very well-known domestic crops, right? I wonder what happened. What made these three species right now so different, especially between paspalum and maize and sorghum? Guangzhou is saying this pretty diplomatically, but basically, the maize and sorghum that we grow as crops aren't quite as hardy as they'll need to be as our climate changes. They're the result of human selection in fields, not natural selection in the world. Maize and sorghum, and you can say they are somehow spoiled, you know, we gave them enough of water nutrients. So over millennia, as we've farmed maize and sorghum, they've changed in ways that delete their earlier coping mechanisms. Why keep those tools around if a farmer is always nearby with plenty of fertilizer and water? Meanwhile, here was Paspalum, a relative from the same common ancestor as corn and sorghum. And even in bad conditions, it could spread like a weed. So clearly, a lot was different between these plants. And that is such a big question. But at least I was wondering whether or not there are some uh, trees that are conserved from their common ancestor but somehow, you know, got diverged during the long time of evolution. So Paspalum could have slightly different mechanisms for photosynthesis and dealing with drought or a lack of nutrients. But it's also a pretty close relative to those two important crops. 
And so if you have a trait, yeah, in Paspalum, it could transfer really well to sorghum and maize. Yeah. If you think about these plants' genomes as different drafts, so they all start at the same rough draft of their common ancestor, then go through different revisions. Sorghum and maize are sort of later drafts of a plant, and Paspalum is like a slightly earlier draft, although it still exists at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you are, you are right. But you could almost like pull a good sentence from your first draft and put it in a later draft, just something good that got lost. Yes, yes, exactly. So here was Guangzhou, a new postdoc, forming this research question he was super curious about. What did Paspalum hang on to in its genome that maize and sorghum might have lost? And remember, he had an assignment on another project, but now he also had a growing list of reasons to work with Paspalum. First, it's a super hardy, fascinating wild grass. Second, it's related to important crops. A third is James told me, hey, we are also collaborating with JGI, DOE, and University of Georgia to sequence and, and assemble this genome. And we also get a very good annotation on the genome. Bam, I said, okay, I want to work on this. Thank goodness, because otherwise, the second half of this episode would be quite difficult to put together. Guangzhou and James found some really interesting results, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, a quick break. The JGI supported this project via the Community Science Program. This program provides genomic resources for projects with Department of Energy relevance, and we accept proposals from scientists at all career stages. James Schnabel, for instance, submitted the proposal for this work as a postdoc before he'd started his own lab. So that worked out well for him, but you don't have to take it from us. Here's James. The genome of a plant like Paspalum is on the order of 700 megabases, which is 700 million ATCGs that you have to get in the, the right order. Paspalum, like most plants and like humans, actually carries two copies of its genome, one that it received from its mother and one that it received from its father. Paspalum in particular, because it is a self-incompatible plant, we can't generate a, uh, an inbred Paspalum plant, which makes uh, assembling the genome a lot harder. It's like trying to put together two puzzles at once that are of similar but slightly different scenes, and all of the puzzle pieces can still plug into each other being able to separate out and figure out which puzzle pieces go together and which ones don't is much harder than it would be for, for most grasses or most plants, and JGI was able to do that. The big thing is just the expertise to assemble the genome itself, which I guess you could call computational tools, but it's not really tools, it's people who know what they're doing. I do a lot of genomics in my lab, but genome assembly is its own um, dark art still, and JGI is really, really good at it. You can find out more about submitting proposals to the JGI on our website head to jointgeno.me slash proposals. And hey, if you want to mix and mingle with our users and other stakeholders in person, consider attending our 2023 annual meeting. Visit jointgeno.me slash JGI 2023. We've also got links waiting for you wherever you're listening to this episode, either in the episode description or the show notes. This is Genome Insider from the JGI. To recap where we've been so far, James Schnabel and Guangzhou Sun have introduced us to their very tough turf grass, Seashore Paspalum. Besides being hardy, it's related to some major crops like corn. 
So James and Guangzhou were looking for traits that could transfer well from paspalum to other plants. And they had a project set up with the JGI to look into those traits. They'd sequence the grass's genome in full and watch how it shifted its responses when it faced different stresses. For that, they'd use RNA sequencing and metabolomics. The next step was exposing paspalum to different kinds of stress. High salt, cold temperatures, less water, less nutrients, specifically low nitrogen and low phosphorus. Guangzhou also grew maize and sorghum in these conditions to compare. He wanted to see what changed across these plants. As they expected, the paspalum plants handled stress better. So they dove into the omics analysis to start sorting out why. And that's a dive into very deep water, into hundreds of millions of base pairs and several different stress conditions. These are data that probably hold many traits the paspalum could transfer to other grasses. But to start, they looked closer at one idea that bobbed to the surface. When they gave paspalum plants low water or low nutrients, those plants survived. And again and again, those plants seemed to be stockpiling a certain molecule. It was a sugar called triolose. Guangzhou Sun again. So when we look at the metabolomics analysis, we found that this, this trellos accumulation in pastelum is about two-folds higher under nitrogen starvation or phosphorus starvation condition compared to when it's growing under full condition. Makes you wonder, was this trellos helping those plants survive? And also, what is trellose? In terms of its chemical structure, trellose is two glucose molecules stuck together, and it's very good at hanging on to water. It actually shows up in the ingredients list for some eye drops that are meant to treat dry eye. And Guangzhou also read up on trellos in plants. It's a signaling molecule instead of a, you know, a sugar molecule that provides energy in plants. And usually trellos is involved in stress responses in plants. So these paspalum plants were doing something that other researchers had seen before. As the plants handled stresses, like low water or low nutrients, they built up trellos in a way that helped them cope. And when Guangzhou looked at the genome sequence from the JGI, it seemed like this had been happening for a long time in the plant's history. We found that the genes involved in trellos metabolism are under higher selection pressure in paspalum. Over its evolution in wild fields, paspalum had prioritized the genes it needed to make and use this sugar. So in a tidy, simplified equation, this looked like Paspalum plus stress equaled triolose. But to make this a solid finding, this team wanted to check that equation in multiple directions. Could they boost Paspalum's triolose stockpile and see an even better stress response? Or in the opposite direction, could they take away that stockpile and watch Paspalum wilt in the face of stress? Great questions. But it turns out those checks would be really tricky to do in Paspalum. Boosting or busting its triolose stockpile would require genomic tweaks. And paspalum is a wild plant, not very tweakable. James Schnabel, again. One of the key challenges, and this is part of why the paper was in review for over a year, is that we couldn't do some of the validation experiments that would be conventionally done in a study like this. In domesticated plants, researchers have often worked out how to transform a plant's genome. So it's possible to do all kinds of studies for validation. They transform a plant into a mutant, one that's better or worse at the trait they're testing, then see if that mutation actually matters. You know, it's sort of a gold standard for, for testing mechanisms in plants. And we couldn't do that in Paspalm. We didn't have the capacity to generate mutants to test 
what we were seeing. Making a paspalum mutant would be another multi-year project. So tweaking its trilose levels to test this theory was off the table. They had to get a bit more creative. And this was just about when another researcher joined this project. My name is Laimer Torres, and I am right now working as a postdoc in James Schnabel Lab here in the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Vladimir did lots of validation experiments, but he didn't transform paspalum. Instead, what we were able to do is create the same mechanism in corn and then show with mutants in corn that, aha, this works in corn. So there was a big benefit there. Other researchers have already worked out how to transform corn, so Vladimir could work with mutants to boost or bust their trilose stockpiles and see what happened. Plus, it's always more fun and more interesting to see how is that in some crops. In this case, corn, but could be sorghum or next time rice. Yeah, and it's also neat that these validation studies were along the lines of the whole goal of this work, finding traits from wild plants that could also help domesticated crops. And Vladimir's help made a big difference in finishing these studies. Those experiments are not easy to do, even though it looks pretty straightforward. It takes a lot of practice and a lot of failures to really get to that stage. But uh, he really, he, he made it. He's really good. When I talked with Vladimir, he talked me through some photos of the corn plants that he worked with. Those are really good uh, photographs because I love the plants. And basically, we have a really good uh, facilities, like greenhouse facilities here in Nebraska. And the greenhouses are just amazing. The people who are working there is, is awesome. And they take care of these plants really well. So about this photo. Each so corn plant is growing in its own little white bucket in an indoor greenhouse. The corn plants look quite happy in their little indoor cornfield. In one photo, Vladimir is actually standing on a step stool to reach the top of a plant. How tall are these? Wow, these were probably more than three meters. That seems really tall. <laughs> That's really tall at some point. And there's something else interesting about some of the plants we're looking at. So basically all these plants are carrying the mutation that we are interesting. We initially aim to grow 300 plants, and then from them, we select or we genotype a few of them to confirm that some of them have the mutations. So basically, when we got some 24 plants that got the mutation, we uh, move forward only with those plants, and those are the ones that we see here. Okay, these are the 24 chosen, huh? Yes. <laughs> so the plants they moved forward with were mutated. We'll explain that mutation soon. But for now, what's important is that these plants were changed in a way that would help this team ask a question about that trio stockpile that seemed to help paspalum plants. Could that stockpile also help corn grow with less water or less nutrients? To answer that question, this team designed experiments that would essentially give them switches to control the effects of stockpiling trilos. They had an on switch as well as an off switch. Let's start with setting up that on switch. So this takes us away from the idea of the mutant plants for a minute. At first, Guangchao actually tried the simplest idea he could think of to boost that trellis stockpile. So I applied trellis to the soil directly, and it turned out the plants are stressed out because trellis is also causing a big osmotic stress in the soil. So maize 
as sort of they cannot deal with that. They cannot even take water from the soil. So they they dry it out pretty fast. It wasn't possible to just give plants more of this sugar in the soil, and it was kind of complicated to try to get these plants to make more triolose. So I thought about it in, in the opposite way. What if I, you know, stop the degradation of triolos? And there, his idea was basically to get a plant to save up this sugar. He could help it spend less, and plants spend or break down trihalose with a specific enzyme. It's called trihalase. So Guangchao looked into ways of affecting trihalase. I I just searched online to see if there's any specific inhibitors of trihalase, and then I found valetamicin A. Valetamicin A is an antibiotic that stops the enzyme trihalase from breaking down the sugar trihalose. It forces plants to save their trihalose. And when Guangchao applied that antibiotic to plants, I saw that maize and sorghum is, you know, growing better than before. It's healthier, greener, and it was accumulating more biomass than before. And I was got, you know, so excited about this. So that took care of the on switch for that trihalose stockpile. Next, the off switch. To get an off switch, they could toggle. This team had to wire up a few more connections to that trihalose stockpile. Based on the literature, they figured out that saving up trihalose boosted an important process where plants reuse bits and pieces of their structures. Guangxiao told me you can actually see signs of this for yourself. If you have grown plants before, you see that you know usually the first leaf will wilt and dried out when the second or third leaf start emerging. So as that first leaf is starting to die off, the plant is also starting up a process to reuse nutrients and funnel them from old leaves to new ones. That process is called autophagy. The name autophagy comes from the ancient Greek for self-devouring. This is a process that all kinds of cells do in both plants and other organisms. So autophagy is something that basically recycles those nutrients in the first leaf. And, and and send it back to the second and third, you know, to support the growth of the plants. So it's like recycling at a cellular level, but then it helps the plant grow eventually. That's right. That's right. So it recycles those uh, these parts and and then break them down. And the idea was that storing up trihalose boosted this autophagy process. To dim that effect with an off switch, they went after autophagy itself, and that's where the mutant corn plants come in. So these are the mutant corn plants that Vladimir worked with. They've got a specific mutation in a single gene that's called ATG12. When we employ this ATG12 mutant in maize, right? So this mutant is autophagy deficient. Those ATG12 corn plants don't perform autophagy as well. So for them, the effects of a trellis stockpile are switched off. And with that, the switch is toggled both ways. So with an antibiotic as an on switch and a genetic mutation as an off switch, Vladimir was ready to test whether or not the trihalose stockpile mattered for corn. He did stress experiments the same way that Guangxiao started out in Paspalum. He said when he's doing these experiments, he could kind of see what was going on even before the analysis was all done. Corn plants sort of wear their feelings on their leaves. When you are applying low nitrogen. Corn, you can see this、uh, yellow color in the leaves. That is so dramatic, and also the biomass or the growth stops just because nitrogen is so important for the plant. So corn without nitrogen looks really bad, 
But in experiments, they flipped the on switch for the trehalose accumulation using that antibiotic, and even in low nitrogen conditions, the corn looked much better. Because basically, with uh, when you apply validamycin A, you are accumulating trehalose, and then you are triggering the autophagy, and then you are also accumulating more uh, biomass. So you can see that. But with the mutant, where the off switch is always flipped off, adding the antibiotic didn't have the same effect. So that's why we uh, conclude that uh, this increase in the biomass in low nitrogen was uh, due to autophagy activity. Got it, because like, if you can turn it off, then you understand how you could turn it on. Yeah, exactly. So the theory they went in with did stand up in these experiments. It looks like what's happening is this triolose is causing corn to upregulate its sort of natural recycling program so it can reuse uh, existing nitrogen uh, within the cell uh, more efficiently. They definitely learned something that could be useful in the future. I would say that we learned from a wild plant a new way to turn on a recycling mechanism in corn so that corn can use less fertilizer and still do all the things it needs to do to be a successful corn plant. And how cool that the idea came from an extremely successful wild grass, one that's managed to survive on salty, sandy beaches, as well as those World Cup fields of Qatar. So at the end of my conversation with Guangzhou, I had to ask him one last very important question about that wild grass that this whole story started with. My other question was, if your kids watch the World Cup, and if you pointed out the grass to them. I, I really wanted it. They are so little now, but I did tell them. I did tell them. Do you see the green stuff? I sequenced it. And they are. <laughs> I, I can see confusions on their face, but you know, somehow when they grow up, I will let them know. You know, there's <laughs> one. You know, one world. And who knows? <laughs> Hopefully, sometime in Guangzhou's kids' lifetimes, we'll have more crops with the traits that made Paspalum a great choice for the World Cup. The way James said it. More crops is good, but yeah, more crops with less impact, even better productive crops that are easier on the planet would be a real win-win. Or, in soccer speak... So again, that was James Schnabel and Vladimir Torres from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. After his postdoc, Guangzhou Sun joined the Mayo Clinic as a bioinformatician. They published this work in the journal Nature Communications, We've linked to that paper in the show notes. The JGI enabled this work via the Community Science Program. You can find out more about this work and the Community Science Program at the JGI website. There are links in the show notes, as well as a transcript online. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Manika Wilhelm. I had production help from Allison Joy, Massey Ballin, Ingrid Okert, and Graham Rutherford. We had music in the middle of this episode by Cliff Bueno de Mesquita, who is a multi-talented postdoc at the JGI. If you like this episode, help someone else find it. Tell them about it, email them a link, or leave us a review wherever you're listening to the show. Genome Insider is a production of the Joint Genome Institute, a user facility of the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Science located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in Berkeley, California. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. And while you're here, a sneak peek at our next episode. Subscribe or follow to get it as soon as it's out. Today, a trip to the bottom of the ocean. It's a mega trip to sample some microorganisms. We're going on a research cruise. 
basically we have to get on a ship somewhere in the world. It takes about an hour or 15 of just falling in the submarine. And you start looking for what sometimes people jokingly call like a crab gradient. You're like, ooh, there's a crab, it's white, it's probably a vent crab. And you follow it until you see more and more and eventually you come across a vent. But that whole ecosystem really depends on the microbes. These microbes are supporting an entire ecosystem without any sunlight. 